Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. The show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at patreon.com slash I Love That Movie, and you'll get a weekly bonus episode if you sign up. It just has the uh, weekly roundup of everything that I saw that week, including, you know, movies, news, things like that. Uh, we also have a lot of um, interviews on there where we talked about Marvel, What If, uh, Loki, WandaVision, and more. So if you want to check that out, give it a shot. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Balga, Michael Cross, Philip Barker. Uh, thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. And if you like what you heard today, and I forgot Jeff Widman, he's here too. <laughs> um, but if you like what you heard today, please uh subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. And I have a returning guest on the podcast, and that is Philip Barker. Say hi, Philip. Hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, now, if they haven't heard your voice on the show before, Philip, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you again for com- for asking. You know, Actually, I think I might have hit you up for this one. I'm not entirely sure how this one transpired. <laughs> I accept both ways. Whether I reach out to you or reach out to me, we'll make it happen. Yeah, because we've been doing this for quite some time now. You've been on my show. I've been on your show. We've gone back and forth about a couple different things, predominantly superhero related for anyone who's listened to my voice on maybe my other show, Superhero Stress, or even maybe uh, The Eternal Night. Um, I actually was, I just started a video channel on the Four Nerds Network. So I'm talking about comics every Friday night now. Nice. Yeah, it's been quite busy now also with with reality, <laughs> with two different jobs and, you know, pretty much busy most days out of the week. But I still get time to watch movies and I still get time to, you know, watch other things that I enjoy. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we're here today to talk about a specific movie that's that's I feel like, you know, definitely part of a larger franchise in, in a certain sense. But, you know, it's 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 I think it's too big of a, a thing to not talk about. I know I really enjoy this movie, but more so because of the things that encapsulate it, but I'm really excited to hear your perspective on it too. But, you know, again, just thank you. It's always a blast talking to you. You Say right back at you, man. And I don't want to hold anyone in suspense. My, my guest always picks the movie. You, you approach me, as you said, what movie did you want to talk about today? Now I'm sure if you, you're all wondering, it's probably a superhero movie. No, (laughs) not today. Not kind of, well, maybe messianic figure. (laughs) <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Dune, that Denny Villeneuve's Dune, and I, I, unfortunately, I have not seen this film in a theater. Shame on me, I know, but I just adore 
this film because not only is it on HBO Max, but just everything about it, the world that it builds, the the people that are in this film, the cast of it, the director, the direction, the core, the shot composition, the way the the story flows, the you know where it takes its roots from. I'm just I'm just a huge fan of what this movie kind of represents in a lot of ways, and I'm excited to talk about it with you. So. Yeah, I have a little bit of a journey. I'm going to share my journey with it and then and then you share your journey with it a little bit. Um, I'm extremely excited to talk about this. I feel like this is something that I never expected to happen. I, I never expected such an incredible adaption of Dune. Um, now, being a huge fan, anyone who's listened to the show of Denny B., um, I thought he's probably the only director I could imagine that would be able to tackle it, especially considering his adaption or not adaption, but his sequel, uh, Blade Runner 2049, when he Mm -hmm. so perfectly did that, I thought this guy can do anything. And he does obviously sci-fi extremely well. The last three movies he's made have been science fiction. And I just couldn't imagine it being in better hands. I just worried that audiences wouldn't be receptive to it only because when Blade Runner 2049 came out, it was kind of a flop. Like it's the perfect movie, but you're right. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, the audience is not there (laughs) in the sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, the original is a, a very, uh, cult classic film that true science fiction enthusiasts really enjoy. I shouldn't say true because that sounds too exclusive, but you know what I mean? People that really dig a certain thing, dig that. And so I was worried Dune would have the same curse, essentially. But instead, it's done pretty well. And there will be, uh, they plan they plan on making three parts. Uh, but the second part has already been announced, which is great. And my, I'll, I'll tell an abridged version. I had a friend that really loved science fiction and would read a lot of science fiction books like, mm-hmm. you know, Philip K. Dick and William Gibson and people like that. Mm-hmm. and uh, would talk a lot about it, but it was always hard to listen to him talk about it because some of the books I hadn't read, and Dune was one of those things that, you know, he would kind of explain the world to me, and it was like, it's very hard to follow when you're not, like, reading it or watching it. Um, I tried watching the the Lynch film, had mixed results with that. I mean, I like some things about it, other things I didn't. Um, not crazy about the, uh, the sci-fi uh, show, uh, miniseries. I, I know no one sent me hate email. I didn't love it. Um, and then I was like, well, I'm going to read the book. You know, th- this friend talks about it all the time. I want to be able to relate. And so then I went ahead and read it and I found it to be kind of a difficult read. <laughs> and That's I admitted this book. online um, that I was having trouble getting through the book. Not like I physically couldn't understand it, but I was having trouble with it keeping my attention and me staying engaged. And mm-hmm. um, I mentioned that the reason was it, it's so much world building. You know, there's so many concepts and definitions thrown at you. Um, and sometimes not really while the story's going, they'll just kind of casually mention something and you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to try to come back to that. And then they introduce something else and you're like, I, okay, but what does this other thing mean again? And I was expressing this online and someone said, well, you should read the glossary in the back of the book. To which I wrote, lol, and they wrote back, no, I'm serious. 
And then I realized, oh yeah, there is a glossary back here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I started referencing the glossary every time I ran into a term I didn't understand. But as you can imagine, that can make the reading experience a little longer. <laughs> and so depending on if that's something that energizes you, maybe world building is like your thing. You just like love all this detail. And if you love that, then you'll like this book. If you don't love that, the book can be a little bit hard to get through. And I just wanted to mention that because I do think there is some gatekeeping with Dune where it's like, oh, you just don't understand it and you just can't comprehend it. And I don't think that's true because I don't think Dune even really classifies as hard sci-fi because a lot of it is like, you know, magic almost. Um, It's more fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not like it takes, I don't know, like a genius to understand. It's just that there's just so many terms you have to keep up with and Again, if you like doing that, then great. And I would say that if you can do that, you're rewarded with a really good story. And also all those details you start to fall in love with and become really interesting. But if this book is not for you, I also get that. You know, I would not gatekeep somebody or force someone to read this book (laughs) because I recognize that it is a little bit different. Um, Anyway, I read the book and I came back to the friend and I said, I read the book. Like, we're on the same page now. And then he said, I actually haven't read the book. Hmm. And I was like, what? All this time when you were talking about you haven't read? He was like, no, but my parents really like it. (laughs) And so they talked about a lot when I was growing up. And so I liked the movie and all that. I was like, oh. So I felt like I went through all that whole journey, but it wasn't for nothing. I read a good book out of it. So after that, I became a fan but I, I saw, you know, the, the Lynch film, like I said, and then also the, um, the miniseries. And I saw issues with it, but I also felt like there's just so much to cover that I, I was worried that that couldn't be done, to be honest. So when I saw this movie, I was very pleasantly surprised and energized by what I saw. Okay, I'm done. No, you're totally fine. That was actually very enlightening. And I've, <laughs> I've heard that I've heard similar sentiments regarding some of the similar past attempts to, I mean, you know, the, the, the Lynch directed film that he's not a fan of himself. Um, I don't mind it. I think it's a nice, it was a nice effort, but I also feel like anything after star Wars at that point was almost too, too difficult to challenge. Um, but it's ironic yes, because, you I know, agree. star Wars does take some, just a little bit of Dune. <laughs> a crazy a amount. Bit. I think it took me physically seeing it to realize how much, You know, I don't know why, but when I read Dune, maybe because, you know, Star Wars wasn't part of my everyday the way it is now. I mean, Star Wars is just like everywhere now, right? Like more so than it was 10 years ago. So I think at the time when I was reading this, I was able to sort of disconnect the two and now it's like impossible. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I love this and... I'm so so excited to talk about it. Um, I guess before I go too much further, I should read the plot. Um, this is going to be a very abridged, not really the plot, the plot, because there's just so much to cover. But I do want to say before we dive too much into it, uh, there will be spoilers. So if you want a spoiler free show, this is not the show for you. But if you want a good discussion about it, or I hope it's a good discussion, I think it will be, um, then keep listening. So Paul Atreides is a brilliant and gifted young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding. Uh, He must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe to ensure the future of his family and his people. 
as malevolent forces explode into conflict over the planet's exclusive supply of the most precious resources in existence, only those who can conquer their own fear will survive. Again, not really what it's about, but I think if we read the entire plot, we'd be here for a long time. <laughs> oh, we'd be here for well over a few hours, quite a few hours. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's no question about that. And the movie doesn't even cover the whole novel. So... Right. It's only you know, even, I think, what, the, the the first maybe third of the novel. And again, I, I have not read the novel. This this film is really, it made me want to now that I can actually have I feel like you'd love it because you're like really good with details. Like you, you remember terminology really well, better than me. So I think I think you would really like it. <laughs> and I should. I, I, I've walked past it in a bookstore many a times and it's just, I, I've... It, it was that mixed emotion of, you know, other factors from other people that I've heard talk to just not really be too into, but even, you know, Danny Villeneuve is one of my favorite filmmakers. You know, you, you mentioned Blade Runner 2049 and I feel like that movie follows its, pre, it's, it's, you know, initial original film, you know, the initial film by Ridley Scott. I feel like that one follows in that one's footsteps in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And this one, I feel like takes even some cues from the, the Lynch film to some extent. With- oh, absolutely. I think that's a really good choice that he made was to not overshadow or dismiss previous interpretations. Mm-hmm. Because I agree with you what you said about the Lynch film. I think aesthetically, it's beautiful. Number one, um, I think the casting is great. And I think it has a lot of good things about it. I just think that and, and tell me if you feel this way, not having read the book, but I feel like you watch it and you're kind of confused at a lot of parts of it. Yes. Because there's not a, an explanation. Like that thing in the tank, you're like, okay. You know, like, you know, it's like there's a lot of stuff that you're shown, but it's not explained. But like you said, that's not his cut. So it's like, we don't know if there's going to be an explanation. But I think when I first saw that movie, I thought, well, I know what that thing is. But at the same time, you know, how much time of the movie are they going to expend like explaining stuff right. and then not be able to get to the plot. So I think, you know, taking some like visual cues and nods to that among other things while still staying true to the book, I think is just, it's just brilliant. I don't, I don't know how he did it, but it's awesome. You know, in the research that I've done, just because I'm, I'm kind of a sci-fi nerd myself, I, you know, huge Star Wars fan. I'm really excited for Boba, Book Boba Fett next month. But when it comes to other sci-fi ventures, I feel like that that's kind of a hit or miss thing for a lot of people. And for Dune, what took me a long time to really appreciate was obviously, you know, again, I love Denny Villeneuve as a filmmaker, and I feel like if anyone was going to really do this this story justice had to have been someone who has a really huge, large loving affinity for it. But I feel like by the end of this film, you know, Dune part one, it really does set the stage for something, for something really grand and really huge and something that you could turn to, you know, three, four, maybe five, six part franchise film franchise. But I feel like that because the mythology of it is super dense in a lot of ways, it also can potentially maybe be a turnoff in some regards but even still the fact that there are so many intricate details to how this universe operates but how it also reflects maybe some a bit a bit of our society today in some regards and how spice could be a, a metaphor for you know plenty of other things that you could replace in today's real world like oil or any other essential kind of that's the word I'm looking for here. 
Um, yeah, I mean, a, a coveted resource that coveted resource, the entire that. world has an interest in. Yeah, it, it definitely was inspired by oil and, you know, the setting of Dune is sort of inspired by the Middle East, um, right. you know, in a lot of ways. And, and I mean, the Middle East has played a big part in our history, right, and continues to. So, yeah, it's it's really, it's a really interesting science fiction book, but... I agree. And I think when you when you've read Dune, it's like you're in a club almost like I've read Mm -hmm. Dune and now I'm accepted into the club of people that have read it. And it's like I think that it's so the the world is so dense that I don't know that it's welcoming, because like I said, when I when I told my friend, like, I don't know if I can get through this, he said, read the glossary. And I at the point when he said that, I felt tired. I was like, read a glossary. Like what? (laughs) You know, like that sounds exhausting. And at the time I thought he was sort of almost like gatekeeping, like you need to read this glossary. And if you don't read this book, like get out of here, you know, which he wasn't doing. It's my friend, Matt. He's cool. But I was like, it it was kind of taken aback. I've never had someone tell me to read a glossary before. So I was kind of surprised. But then when I read it, I understood what he meant. He just, he wanted me to have that experience he had, you know, um, getting to see this whole universe. And then once you know about it, you're, you're excited about it. So it makes sense. I think fans get passionate about, you know, expressing their love for this franchise, uh, or for this world. Uh, but yeah, it can come off as intimidating at times. And that's kind of why I wanted to share my journey and say, Hey, I'm one of you guys. I was also very intimidated by it, but I, I came to really love it. So that's, the good part about it and by the way i read this book like it was probably a decade ago um nice. so my memory of it is not great i was actually trying to look for a copy of it today and then i discovered that i had also read uh dune messiah as well and that i own children of dune i think not i made right. it halfway through children of dune before i abandoned ship but <laughs> <laughs> like i couldn't even summarize these two books for you and if i did they'd probably blend together so mm-hmm. I need to reread them or at least listen to an audiobook or something. But yeah, I would say don't be too intimidated. Like don't let don't let people stop you. <laughs> I will say to speaking to this movie in the testament that Denny Villeneuve is a filmmaker and the cast that he assembled when you have, you know, Timothy Chalamet as young Paul Atreides, you have Duke Leto, but his father played by Oscar Isaac. You have, you know, the essential uncle character in Duncan Idaho played by Jason Momoa. You have Rebecca Ferguson playing his mother, Lady Jessica. You have, you know, um, Stellan Skarsgård. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. that's a that's a tough one. As Baron Harkonnen, you have Dave Bautista as his nephew, Rabban. Then you've also got Javier Bardem as the leader of the Fremen and Zendaya. And Stilgar. Chanthi, yeah, and Stilgar. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Like, this cast is just absolutely stacked. It is pristine. They are all so talented in any yes. other thing that you could see them in like rebecca ferguson was fantastic in doctor sleep jason mm-hmm. momoa is aquaman and yeah on, he's to like top the it perfect off, duncan idaho it's crazy right and then to top it off you have oscar isaac who i love daisy ridley from the sequel trilogy but if you if you have to go with a, a great leading man oscar isaac he oh absolutely in, i love him in like everything <laughs> I'm obsessed with ex, him like he's great in ex machina yes he's also great in sucker punch he's just a really solid actor all around i think getting him to to come over to dune from star wars was just a really smart move on denny's mm-hmm. part just so because you have again you know you've got all these different actors from all these different other franchises who 
it, and in a way, this this film is kind of like Star Wars and Game of Thrones on a cosmic perspective. I was going to say that I think the timing of this coming out after people are used to stuff like Game of Thrones right. was perfect timing because I used to try to explain this to people that Dune isn't really about Paul, even though it starts with him. It's not about him. And, right. and it, it's not about him in the way that Game of Thrones is not about one character. Exactly. But rather all these, you know, different factions in the universe. And that's so different from Star Wars, which is pretty focused on Luke. Um, and why I think in the 70s, you know, that makes more sense. <laughs> like, I don't think that I don't know that this movie could have been made in the 70s and been as effective. Uh, but I think, you know, kind of distilling a lot of these elements down into like what Star Wars is, is a good idea and is much more crowd pleasing. I will say I would have been curious to see what Jodowski would have done with Dune had he got the chance to make it. That Mm -hmm. is definitely one thing that I will. It's right up there with like a George Miller's Justice League kind of kind of deal. Yeah. Like what what could have been. Right. Right. But yeah, I agree with you about the cast, too. I I think when I saw Timothy Chalamet was going to be Paul, I was like, I literally can't think of anyone more perfect. I mean, right. And. And and even thinking of like Gurney Halleck played by Josh Brolin in this in, yeah. in, in, in the eighty four movie eighty five. I don't even remember what year it was, but regardless, you I know, that, that version but don't I, quote me. I on think that. so too. But you know, Patrick Stewart was Gurney yeah. Halleck in that. You know, that's that's a pretty tall order up to as far as just, you know, you know, previous actor roles getting, you know, recast or redone differently some years later. You know, Patrick Stewart by all means is one of the most noble actors ever. And I think Josh Brolin really just kicked ass pardon my french you know just really did a good job as gertie halleck oh completely agree and i i think like kind of going back to chalamet too i think he has that perfect edge to him of like i think it's kind of like what they were trying to go with um the way that anakin is portrayed in the prequels almost but Mm kind of wasn't quite nailed the paul character feels very like I mean, he's he's young. He's sort of he's he's a boy becoming a man in this movie. But at the same time, there's just like an eeriness to him where you're like, I'm not quite sure he's the good guy. Like I I realize in this movie we're focusing on him and I realize that that he's important. And but he does have like a weird quality to him of like. It's not like he's a warm character, you know, he's not all the way. Yeah, you, you get the sense that he's he doesn't exactly lean one way or the other. He yes, is yeah, that, that's all, a that's perfect way of putting he's it. He's pretty gray in a lot of regards. He understands very quickly that there are things that is that are going to have to be done in a very quick manner. And by the end of this movie, like you said, you know, it, it is the journey of a boy becoming a man, especially after the events that transpired, at least in in you know Dune Part One. And my gosh, the things that happen to paul throughout this movie are are you know they make they they, i love luke skywalker i love mark hamill they make what happened to luke skywalker look a little tame yeah exactly and i think like you know in the in the 1984 version i love uh kyle mclaughlin yeah mclaughlin 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 uh i love him you know (laughs) because of twin peaks but and Mm -hmm. and he's just funny in general he's great as the mayor in portlandia um but he's got such a like all american um charm to him like you know real leading man charm that i think 
shouldn't necessarily be in the Paul character. And also just the physicality of Timothy Chalamet, where he kind of does look, because I think the character in the book is supposed to be like 15. So he kind of yeah. does look a little bit like frail and smaller. And I think that plays into like who he ends up becoming like a little bit better. But again, not putting down the 1984 version. I just think, again, such good casting in this movie um, and, and was just so pleased with that. I did want to share three quick facts, if I could, um, that I jotted down. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Oh, share, yeah, yeah. Share away. Okay. So number one, uh, composer Hans Zimmer is a big fan of the novel Dune and turned down working with the frequent collaborator Christopher Nolan on Tenet to score this film. That's right. Uh, that is right. This, yeah. And for the same reason, Denis Villeneuve was the top choice for uh, Bond, and he turned that down. I wonder what that would have been like that to is see true. that Bond film yeah. with him. I mean, that just goes to show how committed Denny and Hans are to really making this world a, a true reality. Yeah. I, re- I think it really speaks to the artist part of them. You know, yes. like, it's just, and I think Dune has always been one of those things that, like, I mean, again, people that love it are very passionate about it. And um, it doesn't surprise me that they're such big fans. It's like, it's just such a big thing to tackle, I think, that they're just like, I want to do this thing (laughs) and do it right. And yeah, it just, like you said, goes to show how much they care. Um, To go back to the David Lynch version really quick, uh, which it does say 1984. So cool. So there you go. go. Uh, He had zero interest in Dune 2021. (laughs) <laughs> he cited that his issues with this new movie had nothing to do with the director but with his own painful memories of making the 84 version because it was such a heartache for me it was a failure and i didn't have a final cut i've told the story a billion times it's not the film i wanted to make i liked certain parts of it very much but it was a total failure for me which i have to say is very heartbreaking to hear I like, that makes me genuinely sad um it, i guess I, it the really... up- go ahead I was just going to say, you know, I, I, I can agree to that hundred percent. I mean, there's a situation that occurred not too long ago that was very, very similar, but mm-hmm. you know, that director, Zack Snyder got to get his final cut. You don't, yeah. you, it's, it's really unfortunate hearing a lot of these directors throughout the years, just not get a final cut on certain movies. I mean, you know, David Ayer is still yet to see his cut of suicide squad. And I'm sure there's a lot of other directors out there who have, you know, other cuts of their movies that they'd probably love to put together right. to some extent. You know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. think David Lynch's Dune is probably really up there as one one of the one of the top ones for sure. I think so. Um yeah, and it's just it's sad to hear. Um but I guess the upside is that there are a lot of fans of that movie still that see the potential and what he made. And like I said, I don't hate on that version because there's a lot there to like. Um the still suits look awesome <laughs> and like just a lot of other things that ended up inspiring the film that we got today so 100 percent, yeah yeah hopefully oh, one I... day he gets a chance to see it and he can kind of if he's able to move past that part of it being so painful maybe he can kind of appreciate the nods to his version um the last thing that i have is uh this is denny villeneuve's first film to be shot on large format cameras and with panavision lenses mm. i just thought that was an interesting aside Obviously, I'm not an expert on cameras, but felt it was worth noting. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I remember just last month when, you know, we were in the month of Halloween. Now we're in November getting ready for Thanksgiving. Uh, the The newest season of Netflix dropped um, 
the movies that made us and season three was predominantly a lot of uh, spooky horror slasher films and Halloween was one of them. That was mm -hmm. uh, John Carpenter specifically cited and used Panavision cameras on Halloween to really get that up close and personal feel. So I, that wow. when you said Panavision, I was, Oh, interesting. So <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I saw this movie in uh, a Dolby Atmos theater. I haven't seen it in IMAX yet. I still plan to, um, but in order to see it twice for this episode, the second time I saw it at home, but I'm proud to say their sound system did very well that Nick installed. So <laughs> we hear me out. Lisa. We enjoyed I'm, I'm, it. I might be nuts, but what if, and hear me out. What if, you know, we are, we're still in a pandemic, but once we're competently out of this and, you know, by the time we get to part two or part three, what if, just what if theaters do a, you know, back to back to back. Oh all my day gosh. That'd be right? a long day. That would, but I'd do it. hundred percent. I think I could do it. If they would give me just like a quick break in between, in between. the two movies, I would yeah. do it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it, I, I wouldn't do that for a lot of movies. <laughs> Right. But I would do that for this one. I, I, I went to like a triple feature of the uh, Mad Max movies before Fury, Fury Road oh. came out. Oh. Uh, but I, I got all the way to Thunderdome and then we, we kind of abandoned ship. Oh. So, <laughs> sorry, Thunderdome. But yeah, I mean, so I, I've definitely done something like that before, but it's been a, it's been a minute. And, uh, you know, there's I b before the the dark times as i kind of refer to this <laughs> pandemic in, in a certain way you know i had a couple friends who did the uh you know the, the big lead up to you know avengers and of age of ultron where they played a lot of the marvel movies in sequential order over like course of a couple days and you know i'm, I'm i'll be very curious to see if that would make a return somewhere down the line given how many movies they have now yeah yeah i think so um but i, but I feel like with dune you know there's precedent to maybe do something like that because of just how grand these movies are i mean i feel like they might have done that for star did they do that for star wars they might not have. i think I they know. did and they've done it for like the marvel movies too where they're like playing back to back to back so right but this film and yes. especially denny you know denny's a big theater supporter 110 percent, and i can absolutely understand the, the the sentiment why it's just a matter of time and other factors for me personally but again you know that i love his filmmaking on a personal mm -hmm. level because he does do things for personal reasons like he did blade runner to tr essentially honor the first film and i think he he did a really great job doing that mm -hmm. but he also wanted to really expand on that world in a way and i think he really knocked it out of the park so when he was announced to do this i was like oh there's i have no question whatsoever that there will not be a bad frame i had full support 110 percent who whatever Same. and whatever he was going to do and it it absolutely paid off and it shows because this man this movie is just so beautiful it's so pretty do you want to talk about some of your favorite scenes well i feel like the the overshot of when they finally get to arrakis and you get to see this this giant sand covered you know palace pyramid thing i i don't really know what it would be called but like, you know, their their central new home on mm -hmm. Arrakis, that is arguably some of my favorite big shots. Because Denny Villeneuve does, does those really big overarching shots that show you, you know, giant big cities with big architectures and things like that. And I feel like he really does take a lot of time and put a lot of detail into it. And then when you couple all of this with a very powerful score by Hans Zimmer, it's 
it's a feat unto itself and i i i just love it yeah it reminded me of uh in blade runner 2049 when he mm. shows you like vegas you know yeah it looked very reminiscent of that or when they're like looking out because i'm i've kind of got the movie on background spoilers oh yeah go for it but you know it's 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 very it, every shot i always like to say that there are certain directors where you could just kind of pick a shot out of their film and frame it on your wall and i feel like that you know, Blade Runner 2049 is full of a lot of those shots and Dune is absolutely in that same ballpark. Yeah. Like, um, I would actually take a frame of Baron Harkonnen as he's talking to Robin and he rises up and he says, this is my dude. Kill them all. <laughs> like, I, I would absolutely hang a picture of him in his full garb with it kind of dripping down like liquid onto the floor. I would hang yeah. that because I think that's a very haunting image. There's so many pretty scenes like that or scenes that sort of remind you of like history somehow, like classic paintings or mm -hmm. marble statues, like the when um, later in the film when uh, Leto is dying um, mm -hmm. and he's laying in that chair, like he sort of looks like, I don't know, like a painting. And just the yeah. framing of that shot was really cool. Like, I don't know, there's just so many moments like that that are so pretty to look at and it's just like one frame you know one frame of the, the scene this might even be a little more haunting when the harkonnens decide to invade arrakis and there's you know duncan idaho and he's just seeing a mountain of bodies <laughs> yes yeah yeah Th that haunting imagery too just there there's something very intricate about the way that denny villeneuve weaves this story back and forth between moments of inspirational like uh, enlightenment and then they get very dark and real mm -hmm. and i really like um in the beginning of the movie uh this isn't in the book but denny v included a quote that just says dreams are messages from the deep mm -hmm. um and it's kind of being said by the sadhukar sadhukar yeah i've yep. got the terminology for i can always look it up again but i think that's how you say it um, and, and those are like the, the trained, um, assassin, you know, warriors that, uh, the, um, imperial people train, but anyway, they kind of have this like throat singing kind of language that they use the Sardaukar. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I think that that quote like really contextualizes the entire film because we're going to see a lot of dreams and and paul gets messages from these dreams he also gets messages i think from the deep could also refer to the uh shy halud the sandworms yes and uh you know what they're communicating as well but i just think that's i don't know i really like how he did that he does a lot of things like that where he kind of i don't want to say takes shortcuts because that's not what i mean but he he's able to kind of like i guess make things more concise in a way mm -hmm. that the audience can kind of jump into the world really quickly. And then there's things that he doesn't explore that you can kind of read about afterwards if you wanted to. I agree. And I feel like the way that this world or this, this movie rolls out and the way that they present the time in which this movie takes place. And, you know, you kind of have to not really catch up, but it, it, it is really good at making the implication that, you know, humanity has, evolved in a lot of ways and there are 
other races out there and the stars and the galaxies and things like that. And I'd feel like this is really a great showcase of that because, you know, the terminology again is also very dense and very pick and pull from mm-hmm. a lot of, of our own mythology we have here in the real world. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, scope, I agree. the scope, like it, it was a tough nut to crack. And I think the only person who probably could have would, would, would be Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. Yeah, there's just like so much I want to talk. I won't bog down the conversation (laughs) anymore, but it's like there's so much to talk about. And that's kind of what's fun about it and also a little bit intimidating. Uh, What's another or go go ahead. I was just going to say it got just it just got to the part where Paul sees the giant mural of the the giant sandworm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think about that shot, too, because that's almost like looking at a piece of your own history to some Mm -hmm. extent. And there's, it's very reflective of that. I mean, humans do that on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I don't know, you you may know this already or may have read about it. One thing they never discuss in the film at all, and they don't need to. I think they'll probably explore it maybe in the second film, or maybe not. Maybe you don't need to. Uh, but there is no technology in Dune. Um. Yeah, there's there's no robots are like forbidden mm-hmm. in this in this time. And that's because there was, as in most sci-fi that have no robots, <laughs> there mm-hmm. was some ancient event that happened where um, you know, it they got banned. There was a big like war. Uprising or something. An uprising, yeah. A term that is removed from the uh movie for reasons. Uh, but yeah, so there there was like a big thing that happened, a big event, and so now they're outlawed, and that's why everyone uses swords. Um, that's why they don't have computers. Instead, they have mentats, and that's what uh, the fur is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zawat, um, who is played by, I need to pull up the whole cast to remember his name. He looks super familiar, but I can't remember his name. Um, Stephen McKinley Henderson. Um, plays the for Hawat, and then also uh, what's his name, Dasmation plays another Mentat too. Uh, but yeah, anyway, David Dasmalchen, yeah, he. Pl- I don't, yeah. for, I don't quite remember who he plays, but he's also like uh, he's one of the Harkonnens, something like that. Yeah, P- Peter. Yeah, Peter DeVries. Yeah, and he um DeVries. Okay, and uh, so yeah, they're they're essentially the computers, they're human computers, and then. The, the reason why the spice is such a big deal in this universe is because it enables, not only is it a, you know, hallucinogen, not only does it extend your life, which I don't think they talk about a whole lot in, in this uh, movie and turn your eyes blue, <laughs> uh, but it's highly addictive and it enables space travel. So without the spice, you can't travel through space because they don't have any other way to do that. Um, there's these creatures that like bathe in the spice that are genetically modified and they're the navigators in all spaceships. You don't even see this in the movie, <laughs> but yeah. that's, that's why Arrakis is like so important. So again, like you said earlier, the analogy to it being like oil is pretty accurate. Um, but again, I just think it's cool that there's all that stuff is still, most of it is still visually represented in the movie, but you know, it doesn't get bogged down by it either. I think the point of spice being the most important commodity 
in this universe is is abundantly clear and i i think that yes that yeah that's what's most important that should have been and i feel like it's handled very well but also the fact that it's also kind of not necessarily guarded but you know you just have to the, the catch is you know yeah you get all this spice and it has all these it, you know if you're get close enough if you inhale it if you you know ingest it in any way you obviously get the blue eyes and dreams and things like that but the cost is you have to avoid the big giant worms but <laughs> true whatever house has control of arrakis essentially has control of the galaxy. the universe yeah right yeah exactly so it, it they they do a really good job of communicating that and we don't learn about every single house but we learn about the most important ones to the story which are harkonnen atreides and then you know um the not Sar- a house, but- the fremen and the sardaukar yeah, the Sardaukar and the Fremen. Yeah, the Fremen that are the, the indigenous people to the planet of Arrakis, who are Correct. just constantly being, you know, oppressed because of the spice. But they're also the only beings capable of having some semblance of control over the sandworms. Which exactly. Is yeah, something that I feel like everyone kind of keeps overlooking, which feels weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think very much where Paul's character will kind of come into play more what will give him like a, such a significant advantage over other houses that have come and tried to rule there. Exactly. Because he's already from, but in this movie, they established pretty quickly that he's not necessarily excited, but he's very determined to go to Arrakis, learn the ways of Arrakis and not be like prior rulers. He does everything he can to learn the ways of the sandworm. And by the end of the movie, he even knows how to navigate through the sands without being detected by the sandworm to save the life of his mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he has this, um, like you said, he cares about the Fremen people, and he acknowledges that what they're doing is just becoming the new oppressors. Now, Leto has a different opinion of this because, uh, you know, he feels like they can be allies instead of just in charge, that there's like no way to get around that they're going to have to rule them, but that it could be a different relationship. And that's what's made House Atreides so popular in the universe is that they do have a more um, fair um, and honest way of dealing that inspires people to be loyal to them. And that is why the Harkonnen hate them so much <laughs> and exactly. why the uh, the emperor is so afraid of him. Which I feel like I'm, I'm actually really glad we didn't see the emperor. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of not, uh, not eager to see him maybe until the next movie or maybe even, you know, still third film if they decide to make one, which I think they might given how dense just the initial book is mm-hmm. i definitely feel like they could do three movies but i'd be content with two but given how just how they did baron harkonnen and this with with stellan skarsgård i feel like there was a very i don't know how to put it like he's he he really established himself as as a really not complex but just a straight up maniacal i am the ruler i'm gonna do whatever it takes by any means necessary and i will conquer by any means necessary he's also very you know wizardly magically powerful and i didn't you know that was the one thing i did not know about baron harkonnen i did not know that there was some kind of you know ethereal you know kind of almost jedi magic force power with him if you will yeah and a lot of that is because of the bene Gesserit. right um who we kind of they touch on a little bit in the film that they're sort of like this religious order 
that is also they they kind of rule everything by ruling from the shadows right Um, they have their own kind of machinations that they enhance but they're also very 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 intricate on who is in what house and who does what where to some extent and they actually spend centuries sort of with their like selective breeding program essentially planting people all over the place and um Harkonnen they don't say in the movie it's not it's not really like a spoiler in the context of the story yet but a side note about him is that the uh one of the Bene Gesserit was trying to have like a child with him Mm -hmm. and um you know he didn't approve of that and then she cursed him ah okay and so that's why he's so like disfigured so he shouldn't like look like that Mm, but it's not just that he's like i guess i don't know mutated the way he is Mm -hmm. but yeah he's like under a curse and that's why he like can't walk around and he has to like float around (laughs) and stuff like that um so they don't really touch on that in the movie but that is something that kind of happened behind the scenes so that's like how in everyone's business they are interesting yeah and so like You know, Lady Jessica, you notice in the film, she's not actually Leto's wife. She's a concubine. Right. And he never married her. And then she gave him a son, which we find out in the movie she wasn't actually supposed to do. She was only supposed supposed to to have a daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They like have so much control over their bodies. They can like decide what they have. Mm -hmm. And she decided to have a son. And then she decides to make him the Messiah, essentially. By teaching him stuff by teaching him the way of the voice yeah which is really similar obviously to star wars right to the you know the force but this time it's the voice <laughs> right you know they, they the power to essentially influence anyone to do your own kind of bidding in a certain way which... yeah and so she's like honing him all this time and the concept in the book is like in women obviously this is a very powerful but someday there will be a man that has the power that only women traditionally possessed and he'll be like redonkulously powerful um but like i really so kind of playing off of that concept i really liked in the movie and this is also not in the book but the movie with like the water or the part with the water glasses Mm -hmm. where she tells him like bring me the water or she tells him to say that to him she's like make me give you the water and he does it and just like visually the way it's represented the way the voice works is like very cool so i don't know i just really like that scene that scene is very well done and i think it does a very good job of of giving you an idea of how that kind of ability works in in the construct of this film and the construct of this world but also you know if this movie does also kind of tease that paul will get the blue eyes from the spice Mm -hmm. yes which is very important because essentially paul does kind of ascend you know to to a certain height and achieve certain things but and we find out too that like all of this is part of a plan right the right when they see him as a messiah jessica points out oh you know the bene gesserit have been at work here which i think it's interesting she chose to clue him in on that because that later kind of a you know that upsets him he's like so you've manipulated these people into believing something and then you make it happen. And she's like, but it's for the greater good. <laughs> it's like, is it? <laughs> and right. so I think that's cool. They established that in this movie too, especially when Dr. Yue mentions that, you know, 
the Bene Gesserit serve the greater good, but they also serve their own design, as he puts it. So it's like, as much as he loves his mom, she's never not tied to this exterior, you know, design and plan yes. that he's not 100% clued in on. Yes. And he's kind of just a pawn. And, and that's a, another thing that reminds me of Game of Thrones. It's like everybody, no matter how much power they wield, they're sort of a pawn of something else. There's like something else making them do what they're doing. And I think that's a cool aspect of the story. So like no one's 100% good or bad. You know, another thing that I don't think is touched on in this film, but something that I learned from um, our good friend Zachy and Brian over the movie film podcast was that a, 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 apparently Duncan Idaho might return. Yes, because he doesn't in the same book, I believe. And that confused me reading the book the first time. I'm like, he's back. What? But yeah, there's like a way to bring people back. Yeah, but they're kind of like not really clones. They're kind of like clones. It's not quite the same thing, but but that's it's like you're not getting are. them all the way back, and you're not sure who you're getting. But that's like, the I, special I, thing about Duncan Idaho, though, is that he remains the same kind of person throughout oh. this, the 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 you know the the I guess not reincarnation because that doesn't feel quite right, but you know the rebirth process, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I feel like. I feel like in the book, and I could be remembering this completely wrong, but it's like you could kind of potentially bring someone back and then you're kind of like not sure if they're like a double agent or not. Mm. Okay. I think that's an aspect of like how he's brought back. But I don't know. Again, it's been a long time since I read the book, but I do know he can come back, like you said. But to just touch on Duncan Idaho, I mean, Jason Momoa just absolutely rocked it in that part i mean everything from the moment that character was introduced to every scene that he was in i i feel like he almost stole it and he just you know brings his own you know he's he's really great with with charisma and i feel like you need a, a strong charismatic character to be duncan idaho and i heard he got to include some of his own like native fighting styles into the character oh that i did not know yeah i was watching like a behind the scenes thing and they were talking about like some of the the sword work and stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of neat too. And that's, what's cool about this universe is it can be interpreted in so many different ways, you know? And I, I just think that the more that you pull from other things, it kind of just adds interesting layers to them. Right. Especially when you know how loyal he is to house Atreides, how loyal he is to Duke Leto and which, you know, kind of counterbalances the, 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 the really dark aspects that lady jessica has tied to the ben jesuit mm -hmm. and and it's kind of cool because the paul atreides character is really i mean he's lucky right because not only does he was he like sort of genetically <laughs> engineered in some ways into becoming who he's going to become right um but he also has been training with his mother on using the voice but he's also got the best teachers ever in combat too because he's got gurney and duncan idaho Correct. And, and and like their fighting styles and what they're able to do rivals the Sardaukar. Sardaukar. So it's like he's got the best of everything. So he's not a Mary Sue. He was trained in everything. <laughs> and, you know, to touch on Gurney Halleck, too, played by Josh Brolin, he was just absolutely phenomenal as well. I yeah. mean, their, 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 their training sequence when you see Paul and Gurney go at it. because It looks Idaho, so cool. It looks fantastic. But I also love just how brutally honest that gurney is with paul like he he tells him flat out like we're being sent there and it's it's not going to be pretty like yeah 
you've never faced Harkonnens before. They are not human. They are brutal. Yeah, so- that line. And like, yeah, exactly. And like, um, we get sort of like a foreshadowing of why this is like not necessarily a good thing. You know, why would suddenly Harkonnen retreat from Arrakis and give it to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and they sense that they're walking into a trap before it even happens. And yeah, this is kind of where Paul is finally sort of clued in on, hey, this is like a really dicey situation. It's not good. Not only that, um, that's also why Duke Leto was very, very quick to try and make some, some you know, small jest of peace with the Fremen. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. he fears of what the Emperor and the Harkonnens might be up to. There's a visual cue that I didn't notice, but I saw... Um, this whole week I've been watching like all these videos on YouTube about it, Mm -hmm. but that um, in the first shots where we see like the Harkonnen uh, dominating Arrakis when Chani's kind of giving her monologue, Mm -hmm. um, there's like a lot of those like barrels there. And then Mm -hmm. when uh, the Atreides get there, a lot of them are missing. And it's sort of like a visual cue that they like actually removed some of their stuff because they knew they were going to attack it. Yes. And I thought that was kind of cool too. Just, man, the way he just thinks of every little detail is just awesome. <laughs> or also, I also really like the first introduction of the worm and how I think, I think Denny talked about it in an interview, how it was essentially almost like looking into the mouth of hell. Yeah. And also has teeth kind of like a whale, like some yeah. whales. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it reminds you a lot, of course, of like stuff from Star Wars too, right? In the pit and things like that. Oh, this thing makes the Sarlacc <laughs> look like change. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. No knock, George, but man, that 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 if if the Sarlacc pit was the bar, the the sandworm in Dune in this movie in Dune has absolutely taken that bar and just shot it into a galaxy far away. And plus, you can ride them, but yes. you don't find that out till later. Oh, you know what? I also love the ornithopter. The dragonfly mechanical, yes, those things so are cool. rad. And I, I think I, just like that whole like no technology thing forces them to be so creative with their designs. Yes. And think so far outside of the box. It's just fun to see. And I actually looked this up on a Google search because I was just fascinated by the way this thing looked. And apparently, you know, Dune has has been, you know, through a couple different conceptual stages through a numerous amount of artists. And I had Not seen surprising. a couple a, a couple different takes on the ornithopter, but you know, again, when you get you got Denny Villeneuve, who's just very, very meticulous about the way his technology you know, technology quotes here looks. It's it's very intricate. It's very you know, not, I won't, I don't want to say Star Wars inspired, but it is very Blade Runner. Like you know, yeah. when I, when I, thought I mean, Star Rival, Wars inspired a little bit too. You know, yeah. like it's hard to ignore the fact that, like I said, when I see Paul, I kind of see Anakin a little bit. I mean, you know. The name Paul sort of sounds like Luke, of course. <laughs> I mean, let's also be but... real. Jason Momoa is kind of rocking the Qui-Gon Jinn cut haircut. There yeah. Too. And it's interesting, like in this version or, you know, in this story, um, the sort of Jedi character is almost just his mom. Just, you know, she's <laughs> wearing true. like this yeah. hood. And yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's it's cool. Like I I dig, you know, no, no knocking Star Wars. I love Star Wars too. I kind of, I just dig all the crossover, honestly. And even like the the spice harvesters, they're almost kind of reminiscent of you know the 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 Jawa, yeah, vehicles. You know, absolutely. They drive around kind I, of. I feel like the Jawa themselves um, are sort of like the Fremen. 
in a way and, and could, like later they kind of have to you know change that or the rate the tuscan raiders too mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. but you know just in this in this story we're on 100 percent on their side <laughs> it's a little different but um yeah i don't know i just like all that that kind of stuff but yeah those those orthocopters they, they ornithopters cool. or, or, ornithopters or, see i told you like i've got this good. in front of me because i can't remember all these terms <laughs> i don't even um, know how i remember it it's the one thing i kind of remember and it's only because i just kind of looked at it looked around in it. yeah i'm looking yep. at the okay i can say it um i like dragonflies too yeah it, it they look so cool like i don't know and that whole scene where they're like escaping to later oh, so yeah cool. and paul kind of has that vision in the middle of the sand when a worm's on its way I mean, the way that they present the visions, too. Like, just think about how many things they're introducing to you in this movie, but he does such a good job of it. You know, you'll appreciate this. When I watched this the first time and I saw that big round shift and even now looking at it while they're doing the the, the sand escape from the worm, you know, um, I thought to myself, like, you know, he's done Dune. And those ships, they remind me of an anime that I love watching when i was a young young kid and that anime is dragon ball z because there is a lot of capsule corp ships and a lot of uh super saiyan and you know namekian ships that kind of resemble some things here in dune and i'm like denny <laughs> that's his next project please by all means do it take a take a stab at dragon ball or akira your... that's yes <laughs> yes someone take a stab but the right person <laughs> um no Sorry. i could see that i i love how like organic a lot of this stuff looks too yes 100%. um that like the ships and stuff like that they like the one or yeah i guess it's a ship the one where they're like it, it's like that long tube is that the one that you're talking about mm-hmm. where stuff's coming out of it and then there's a scene where you can see that like there's another planet like on the other side so it's like there's sort of like a wormhole situation happening too i don't know he just shows you so many big things and doesn't have to like tell you every single thing about it and i just i love his confidence you know in showing us some stuff and like letting the audience kind of discover things yeah i i I couldn't agree more i mean even everything like even towards the end when the harkonnens actually do their full-on invasion after they've made their pact with the sarda car it's and and you know everything kind of comes into its full you know when it kind of comes full circle and to your point that you get to that that point of duke leto kind of stuck in the chair and the harkonnens take him but he gets you know the one up on on the harkonnens with his you know gas tooth yeah suicide pill i don't know i don't even know what you would consider that i don't know yeah unfortunately it didn't work but we don't yeah. get to see all the damage it does right away I wondered if there was some kind of long lasting effect and if there were to be something, it would probably maybe be addressed later on down the line. Yeah, I think so. But it depends on their interpretation. There's a few things that are different, Um, even like especially towards the end of the movie, like the order of some of the things that happen, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with the standoff fight that he has. Right. Where the Fremen trust him and stuff like that. It's a little bit different from the book. But one thing I really liked about it that they keep showing throughout the movie is Paul has these visions, but they're not 100% the future. Yes. 
And I really like that concept. They're, they sort of become a guide for him, but he he learns after a while that they're not direct correlations with what's going to happen, that things are shifting, changing, influenced, or maybe just he's it's not 100% accurate, but he can still use what he sees to kind of guide him. Possible futures, I think, is the way I saw it, that it was interpreted. You mm-hmm. know, he, he sees possible futures but not as it turns out as we as the movie progresses you know not everything ever becomes 100 percent. like for example you know when, when he keeps having dreams about the person he winds up fighting at the end of the film you mm-hmm. know it's it's always a more the more often than not presented in kind of a, a friendly fashion but that by the end of the film find out that is absolutely not the case yeah yeah that he actually has to go against him it's actually chani the person that he's going to sort of connect with the most and you know she's going she's going to guide him but not the other character yeah which i heard some people kind of give flack that zendaya wasn't in this enough and i was like she was pretty in it for yeah i heard that too and i've heard of um i guess we can address this (laughs) there's a couple things i feel like that have been said about this movie that i think are premature um and one of them is, I think, the way that women are represented. Now, of course, this book was written in 1965. <laughs> so let's start there. But I would say the role that some of the women play in the books are because uh, Frank Herbert was drawing on history, you know? And so they sort of inform the way that women are in the movie. So, like, you could sort of see his mother almost being like, you know, the Virgin Mary, right? And her biggest mm. role is what? Having the Messiah. So that's kind of what happens to Lady Jessica. But I don't think it's like saying this is the role women are all regulated to, but in this universe, yeah, I don't think they have. Now that's going to change. I don't want to give any spoilers, but things change. Let's, let me just say that. And yeah, with, with Chani, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't, again, I'm like scared of like giving spoilers, but I'm like, I think the amount that she was in it was just right. I, I I don't disagree. I feel like there was a pretty decent amount of everything to convey of what is to come. or what Her part is. is just starting. Right. Because of where the movie cuts off, they can't show more yet. Exactly. But yeah. I love those wetsuits. Those wetsuits. Oh, just... yes. The still suits. The still suits. The yes. second the movie was over, I was like, time to go home and start on our still suits. I don't know that I would really do that. It's a lot. It looks like a lot of work, but I was That's like, true. they look so awesome. I love the concept of them. And it took me a second watch, but uh, when the character, the doctor um, or the ecologist, what was her name? She's played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, I think. Dr. Liet Kynes. Yes. Um, I really liked the scene where Dr. Liet Kynes um, later in the movie is trying to get away. She's about to ride the sandworm and she's got those hooks out mm-hmm. and then she gets stabbed. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like yes. water shoots out instead of blood because their still suits are full of water. And I just think that's so cool. Like the visual of it, the meaning of it, because you know, water is such a, a precious resource. It's literally, you know, life giving your life. Where a lot of us, a lot of our bodies, is made up of water. So, like when she stabbed, and all that water comes out. I just thought, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. 
I, I'm actually looking at the cast list right now on uh, IMDb, and um, I had no idea that Charlotte Rambling was. I was curious who played Mother Moham Moham Mohayam. I know it's hard. Yeah, Reverend it Mother Mohayam. Yeah, yeah. Some of the names are, I think, supposed to be Arabic, and some of them seem like they're drawn from like Hebrew names. Yes, I think that's yeah correct. Very interesting cast of characters here my goodness yeah but yeah the still suits are really cool because obviously water is a scarcity in do in arrakis right and um we find out later in the movie too that it it could have been a paradise which i think again plays in that idea that you see come up a lot in a lot of religions about a paradise being sort of like the ultimate outcome of what they're aiming for right um but they were going to turn this desert planet into like a planet full of water and life and stuff like that. But of course they immediately abandon that when they figure out, Hey, spice exists. <laughs> um, and so that's why they have to wear those still suits. I like the concept of the still suits. And I think it actually makes a lot of sense for just regular survival on a desert planet, but even just the aesthetic look of them, they just, mm-hmm. it's very intriguing that you would find a suit that would just kind of flow water through your body. I like the, you know, Javier Bardem as Stilgar. I I really like his performance in this. Um, And I love when he says like, what more can you offer than the water Mm -hmm. in your flesh? Like how water is so scarce that it's like hard for them to even see beyond immediate need, you know? And I just thought that was really interesting. Also, the scene with the palm trees where it's like they're, in a way, wasting water, like just showing off how rich they are by like, hey, we're going to water these plants. It could feed or it could sustain four lives or whatever he said. Mm-hmm. And it's like they just kind of water them. It's sort of like a show of power. Yeah, that was also something I I didn't pick up on up until I'd watched. I also didn't see the twist of Dr. Yeo. UA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's part of like, um, oh man, what are they called? He's part of, so again, because there's no technology, um, physicians are like specially trained like the Mentats so that they can like examine you and figure stuff out as well as I guess technology could. Mm-hmm. So he's under this like oath where he could never, ever, ever hurt his patients. So even when he has to betray them, he has two little outs, uh, you know, helping, uh, Paul and his mother and then the tooth and yeah that's meant to be like such a huge betrayal that's like impossible for Leto to see coming but obviously with what they've got hanging over UA's head you can't blame him was that pun intentional no (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think about that I I, as soon as you said it I I was was like like, no (laughs) wow that was either really good timing or she she had one sit, she was sitting on that one for a while. Good no, job, no, no. Lisa. <laughs> Not that clever. But oh, man. yeah, it just came out. But, but yeah. it, was also, it was also tragic too, because you know, Harkonnen just ends him right there in the in the table. It was like you you, you want to join your wife? All right, fine. It's like, oh he yeah. really does mean business. He's not a guy playing around and i actually like that because you know i've i've just predominantly seen stellan scars garden you know more positive roles yeah but it one way you know have you seen the fan theory that that pet 
in the movie. The like weird spider thing was maybe mm. his wife. Mm. No. There's no proof. Now the <sighs> pet is actually in place of in the book, unfortunately, something that they wrote out of the movie, I think, for good reason. Her Conan is typically like a creepy pedophile. Ah. And they wrote that out. I think because it also, you know, it's it, there, there's been a long line of like when characters are portrayed as like being interested in the same sex, it's always pre- presented as like this horrible perversion. And obviously, right. pedophilia is not the same as being attracted to the same sex, it's not at all the same. But I think because of the problematic implications of that, and just because it's gross and unnecessary, they just took it out of the movies, which I'm glad they did. But yeah. Smart choice. And also I've seen the the mocap actress who did that pet. And I gotta say, like that that's that's a feat unto itself because they're they're that that creature is just in a very awkward position and yeah. it, it looked absolutely horrifying. Like I, I, I kind of jumped a little it's bit. It's got to come up later, right? Like what yeah. was up with that? Yeah. And and also that part where uh, the other Mentat was like, oh, it can't understand us. And then she says, get out with her other voice. And she's like, it understands. Which I felt like maybe there was a double meaning there, you know? Mm. Like why does it understand? Was that their little pet that was going to eavesdrop and do something? Or does she know something about that pet? I don't know. I just felt like... Maybe in the second part we'll, we'll learn more about that, or maybe not. Remains to be seen, but I will say just on a on a creepy level scale, that thing was like a twelve out of ten for sure. Yeah, it was horrifying. <laughs> it was very effective in being extremely creepy. Gotta hand it to Denny; he did it with a rival, and I kind of yeah. had a feeling he would do the same thing here, and he did not disappoint. Yeah, you could say even from enemy too. Oh, true. Very true. Yeah. I also love the shot of when, you know, the, the attack begins and Brolin just kind of looks up and sees in the sky that they're just kind of yes. you know, screwed 10 ways to Sunday. I feel like there he's got to kind of credit George Lucas, huh? And in being able to capture, yeah. I think, I think space battles can be hard to portray because it's like the stakes are difficult to show to your audience, but they do such a good job. Those big explosions of the little tiny people running at the bottom and... You know, you feel it feels real. Or how like the bombs kind of just drill through their shields and then make everything like kind of implode within the shields and then it explodes all the way out. Yeah. Man. Oh, I don't think we've even talked about like their personal shields. What do you feel? How do you feel about that? Like that was something that looked kind of clunky in the 84 version, but. Thank you for bringing it up. Because that's exactly yeah. how I feel about them in the '84 version. I, that is, <laughs> if, if anything, that's probably one of the weaker elements of that eighty of the '84 film, and I can absolutely understand why. And I feel like that is the one thing I remember from the '84 film because I had watched it quite a few times growing up. But that was one thing I always just kind of like glanced at, like mm, that doesn't really feel right. But you know, it's something you could almost leave out, right? Like right. because it, the the shields are so weird. In how they operate that I feel like, you know, some people probably watch this movie and go, what? <laughs> What's going on? Because they don't like 100% explain it. No, no, they don't. But it's and I can I can give you a quick uh, if, if anyone's interested, 
the shield defensive. The protective field by the Holtzman generator field derives a phase one of the suspensor nullification effect. (laughs) A shield will permit entry to objects moving at slow speeds, depending on setting. The speed ranges from six to nine centimeters per round per second uh, and can be shortened out only by a shire-sized electric field. Oh, wow. So wrap your mind around all that. But essentially, you have to move at a certain speed to penetrate the field, the the shield. Um, Right. And And it's not being fast. And that's why they're taught about the slow blade and why a slower blade is more lethal in this universe because it can Mm -hmm. penetrate the shield. Yeah. Which is crazy, but then when you think about it from a, you know, a, a technical fighting standpoint, okay, I can absolutely understand that that kind of logic. And I forget what it's called, but like, um, what's his name? Uh, Duncan Idaho uses those little like, that gravity thing too at one point. Oh. So he can like jump yeah. around. That and looked really of, cool too. You mean like kind of a force push, force jump? Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what it was called, but it was. <laughs> I don't recall. Either. Again, I, I could try to look up everything, but it's impossible. Someone, someone out there is screaming, listening to this. Like, oh, I'm sure. Can't believe she doesn't know what that's called. But yeah, I don't. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> you know, one other image that I also found interesting, just from the the first shot of even just the tease bit in the trailer, when the 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 starter car just kind of descend onto the the Atreides and just go absolutely nuts on them yes. when they're going down the steps mm-hmm. they make very quick work of them and you're like oh oh they are not to be trifled with at all yeah and this is after we saw that like it seems like the weaker ones they drain all the blood out of and yeah. then the stronger ones drink it like we've gotten a lot of images of them being like i mean you don't mess with them they're really cool very much so and man that betrayal that is uh, that is just something else. Yeah. Oh, can we talk about the Gamjabar real quick? That was an interesting concept, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, you know, um, there we get what's in the box, right? From the prime Ben Jesuit, Madame Mohayam. Yeah. So she's basically like, hey, I need to, like, test this kid because... You know, his power is dangerous. You're not supposed to train males in it. And you did that. So let's test him. And she holds this like poison needle to his neck. And then he's got to stick his hand in his box and be in pain. And I think Chalamet's performance during that scene is really good. Coupled with his mother, uh, who is like experiencing the pain at the same time in a way. And mm-hmm. fear of like what he's going through. And we get that whole like fear is the mind killer, you know, uh, quote that's so famous from Dune, but it's just represented so well. And then like when he's in pain, he sees flashes of like those palm trees burning that we saw earlier mm-hmm. and like a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then he's able to like, you know, we, we get a really good visual sensation of the fact that she's blown away that he can like survive this and handle it so well. It is pretty astonishing that at this young of an age, after everything that happens to him and seeing the burning palm trees, and I wondered if those are real palm trees, if they were CGI or not. Yeah, I don't know. I'm honestly not too sure, but man. Given the climate change aspect of the story, maybe they weren't, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not too sure either. 
I also really <laughs> like that Duncan Idaho is probably one of the only few warriors who could take on Sar- the Sardaukar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because man, I mean, he he, takes- he goes down, but not without a big fight. Right, but even before his final fight, like when he when the Atreides house is being invaded, he he goes to town on quite a few of them. Yes. It is really cool. Oh, also in the in the Gamjabar scene, I liked the way the Reverend Mother like pulled him into the room really mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. I just thought that looked so damn cool. I don't know. I just I couldn't imagine that being done better, but like the like kind of like loss of consciousness that he has, and then he's like boom in the room. The way that yeah. I don't know, just the that point of view is just really interesting. Or the way like he he try he basically tries to call her out on being rude in his own house and she just scoffs it off like as if that matters to me and just pulls him forward and makes like it shows him why her why his own mother is even so just terrified of her mere presence. Yeah, yeah. And and her relief when he's not dead. Yeah. Like when she sees that he's alive, she's like, Oh thank God. So like, you know, and that's kind of scary, I'm sure, for Paul, because he's like, Wow, you really like knew I could have died right then and you still put me in this room and it just shows how much power the Bene Gesserit wield yes yeah cool. it does yeah. and it also shows that they're she's very much concerned about what he is capable of too yes and and you know when she asks him about his dreams and he's like who how do you know about my dreams mm-hmm. and then his mom's like not me and it's like wow you know they don't have any sort of privacy or secrecy in this order. It's oh, like no. everything is. And didn't it kind of make you wonder? And I can't remember from reading the book, so I don't think this is a spoiler, but I was like, how does Paul know that all his dreams are his own? Mm. I wondered about that. Like, could somebody be influencing them or putting images in his head? But I can't remember if that happened or not. Probably honestly, not. But... I, that That's something that I don't think I, I ever came across in my research for this. Cause again, you yeah. know, I, I look, on well as a character he should question it because (laughs) (laughs) because like everything else is so by design it's like how does he know this isn't but i don't know that's very true (laughs) yeah i don't remember that happening but i was like that's that would be my first assumption like well if they planted this religion then how do i know what i'm seeing isn't planted but anyway um what is another scene has is there anything that we haven't touched on from the when when Atreides is getting just annihilated by the Harkonnens. There's a shot of Duncan Idaho escaping on a on an ornithopter, and yeah. the way he goes through the you know the the sand city, I guess for about lack of a better phrase, there, uh, so it, cool, just absolutely phenomenal because you get like you know it kind of whizzing and warping through these giant blasts, and it kind of cuts back and forth between like uh, when when Paul and his mom are kind of left to fend for themselves after being picked up by the Harkonnens. Yep. But they have that thumper, so. They have the thumper, but also just <laughs> the, the use of, of um, using the voice. Yeah. That was also a, a nice, like, an improvement from what we had been shown prior at the beginning of the movie. Like, now he's actually starting to understand what it means to, and how to utilize the voice when he can. I like the green hue too that's happening in that mm-hmm. copter when they're using it. I almost thought that I don't know why, but I got like a witchy kind of vibe from it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they basically are witches. 
<laughs> is that is that what they essentially space witches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty accurate. Okay. I mean, they are like sort of like nuns, but I mean, they're using magic. I mean, you know, so it's like, and they're controlling people, making them do stuff. Uh, yeah. Well, she also communicates to Paul through more ways than one, like especially with uh, sign language. Oh, yeah. She's got that, like, I think it's like a combat language. Yeah. Um, that they that they use. Yeah. Again, like just adding so many freaking layers, you know, there's different languages and different methods of communicating. But yeah, and it comes in handy, like it's used so well in the story, the, w- the when they use it and when they don't and stuff like that. Not only that, especially when she, you know, you find out that not only is she, she's the concubine to Jer- to Duke Leto. She <laughs> to Jared the- Leto, that would be funny. That would be but. funny. <laughs> but she, she also has the ability to use the voice. But then also on top of that, she knows how to fight. Yeah, which is like, it's like she's got all these like secrets, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like her arsenal is just unending. Because yeah, there's a part where they're like, well, the, you know, Paul can learn the ways of the Fremen because he's young, but she's old and irrelevant. Right. So let's kill her. And then she kicks their butts and they're like shocked. Um, and then he even says like, you didn't say that you were trained. And she's like, well, we didn't have enough time to talk. That's true. And then she gets like really close to his face. Did that feel weird? I don't know. I was like, are they hinting at something to come with that? I can't remember from the book, but I know that I think they imply in this film that she's in fact pregnant with the letter. She is. Yeah. Yeah. She absolutely is. Yeah. Which will be very interesting to see how that transpires in in the follow up film. Oh, is it? (laughs) Oh, Oh. oh, is it? Oh, is it? <laughs> You're in for some fun stuff uh, with that. But yeah, no spoilers. And I think, again, you know, Rebecca Ferguson, again, she's just an absolute gem of an actress these days. And I love everything she's been in since I've... When was the first thing? I, I know for sure I saw her in Doctor Sleep. But there was something I saw her in. Yeah, I feel like I've seen her in other things, too. You know, she's only 12 years older than Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> wow. But he looks like a kid, kind of. I mean, he, he looks like an adult, but he looks young. I think he's only like... I think he's like 23 or 24. Somewhere in that ballpark. He's young, yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he pulls it off well, I, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, you know, I think he, so. And, I, you know, when it comes to giant intergalactic epics like this, I feel like age for these characters just might be you know unless it's explicitly stated for very story specific reasons might otherwise be considered irrelevant oh completely agree i thought it was just a funny aside but yeah no i mean i think she's perfect casting for sure yeah and And, and like i said i think in the book he's supposed to be 15 which it's kind of like in game of thrones how they were all like 14 but like in the movies or in the show they're like 20 because it's like yeah that feels weird just some of the stuff they're going to have to do. It's like, I don't want to see 15 year old go through all this. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, if they legit made a 15 year old go through, that'd be something else entirely. But yeah, I'm you're like, I don't see 15 year olds as men like murdering people. I don't want to see that. <laughs> so good choice with that. I also love that Oscar Isaac had his beard for this. I've, I don't think I had ever seen him with a beard, but I'm glad he grew a beard out for this, this role. Yeah, I don't think mm, Ex Machina, I think, is the only oh, other time. You know what? Maybe, yeah. Uh, but I think he wasn't supposed to have one, uh, but he looked good in it. And so he has it. 
that's what I've read <laughs> is the director was like, yeah, that wasn't part of the character, but look at him, look at him with that beard. Like he just looks good. Especially in like his last moments too, when he's mm-hmm. kind of sitting in his, in the, the dining room and Harkonnen's got his whole merry band of misfits and all his followers and Dr. Yoe. Is it Yo- I think UA? UA. Thank you. No, it's okay. And like, like I said, I'm struggling with Sardaukur and Sardaukar and yeah. <laughs> I'll always struggle with these terms. I read the glossary and I still struggle. One of my favorite shots is Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen, hovering over the table to get UA. Yes. Also when he like runs his fingers over his head. Like yeah. The, you know uh apocalypse now style and the way he just kind of descends down upon him still chewing his food that's yeah, just it's gross it's gross <laughs> it's but awesome. like i'm just even still like blah uh, uh. yeah he's a great baddie for sure i agree i i was i've been kind of waiting to see what he could do as a villain because obviously you know bill is a very solid pennywise but <laughs> yeah man Stellan just the up, family up. just yeah churns out actors. hundred <laughs> oh, percent. And the way he just hovers, that is just it creeps me out. But I think that's that's the point, and that it works just so well. Ooh, Denny, you are a genius. <laughs> yeah, I love all the costumes too. Like throughout the whole thing, like you know every single house that's represented the Bene Gesserit, the Mentats, the, I guess, I can never remember what they're called, like the Imperial Order. <laughs> I'm just going to call them the Star Wars names. But, you know, like, they it, it, they just all look so cool and so unique. Um, and I just love, love seeing all that. I think There's on a the lot whole, of fabric. <laughs> Sorry. I think, on, I think on the whole, this one definitely set out to accomplish what it did and it did it exquisitely well i'm glad that there's now another sci-fi epic in the conversation as far as like you know films major motion pictures go there's i feel like there's more precedence now to maybe try and take a bit more of a risk on science fiction films going forward i agree 100 percent. i mean it's uh it's just they did such a great job and treated it so it's so serious, so cinematic, and so so good. You know what I mean? Like, as we've kind of mentioned before, like, I absolutely love Star Wars, but I like the serious tone of this, you know? Same. Like, it's it's got this, like, sort of historical epic vibe. I mean, you know, Frank Herbert was really inspired by Lawrence of Arabia. I think that's kind of obvious in the film, but... Oh, yeah. Um, I like that weight to it like that you could take something that is truly you know fiction but make it feel so relatable and so like you said before like it 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 extends far beyond just like a couple characters you feel like there's a whole universe a whole history you did such a great job with that so i love it and i also just now realized that they have a bullhead because his grandfather wrestled bulls for sport Mm -hmm. and you know what the term Harkonnen is like, I think from a Scandinavian word for bull. Ah, well, how about that? (laughs) 
I believe. Yeah. Well, the more you learn. There's a lot of like little layers like that. The more you know. And I think it's implied like that the Atreides and the Harkonnens like are directly from Earth. But Earth is just so so far in the past. Yeah, I think that that might be right, but I'm not 100% on, on that detail. Yeah. Yeah, I love this movie. I do. <laughs> Me I think too. It, it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking. And it, it you know, honestly, I feel like Dune was probably a long time coming. It just took the right people, the right place, the right time to really come together and do it in an earnest way. I was telling um, earlier today, I was telling my dad about this movie. And he had said that he had tried to read the book, that he tried to watch some of the other previous adaptions, and that he mm-hmm. just couldn't really... He said, I just can't really get a grasp of what's happening in the story. Is It's kind of confusing. And so I kind of ran it down for him really fast. And he was like, well, why can't a movie do what you just did? And I was like, well, <laughs> you need to see this movie. <laughs> because it does do that. <laughs> so see this movie. I agree completely. Because then you also get to see Bird Harkonnen not quite die. Yeah. And I feel like, too, like for me... Um, as I've mentioned a million times throughout this, I had trouble, you know, sort of juggling all this in my mind. Like when I would try to sort of explain the book, I just get lost and sort of start talking about all the different terms. And like, people are like, what is she talking about? Um, I feel like this movie does such a good job of like distilling everything into like a very easy to follow along story that it's even made me better able to explain it, you know? And so I just, I really, encourage anyone out there if if you haven't like dipped your toe in this yet and you're still here and you're still listening um i think that you really should because i i do think it is a truly special film it's definitely an epic and oh i forgot to touch on this too really fast um a lot of people have concerns with the whole like white savior aspect of this movie Mm -hmm. um and you know you could say like well you know written in 1965 mimicking some of the things that are going on today um but I would also say that without giving away too many spoilers, Dune is sort of like a cautionary tale of what political and religious fanaticism can do. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Yeah, I'm not. That stuff, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but like when it comes to stuff like this, like space epic, science fantasy, it, you know, really comes down to again you know if it's an adaption if it's an adapted work then it's up to whoever's adapting it to be as faithful as they wish to be yes you know what i mean but like when stuff like when i hear about stuff like that it's not so much as i i scoff it off i just kind of shake my head because it's like sometimes stuff like that really does feel from a place of, of maybe forced negativity well i think there is valid criticism that Yes. The sort of white savior narrative is a thing. Yes. But I would argue that if you read the book that I don't think that's the message you would walk away with. And I think that there is a line early on in the film when Chani says, who will our next oppressors be? That is sort of foreshadowing that aspect of it. That And I think like, I just like in our history where it, it seems like the second people get too much power, it's a bad thing. Um, even when somebody starts from a good place, I think that that ends up being sort of a theme in Dune. So I would, 
it's one of those things where I would say like, I kind of had a reaction like this with a movie that I saw earlier, earlier this week, actually, where, you know, I'd seen like a TikTok that was like, oh, this movie's going to be really problematic. It's terrible. Da, da, da. And then I watched the movie and I was like, well, it wasn't though. Right. And if they had just watched it, I was, it, it's the opposite of what they're worried about. Their, their fear is valid coming from a real place. But then if you saw the movie, that's not what happens. And so like with this, because it's such a big story and we're only getting part one, I totally understand that fear, but I would say that's not going to happen. So don't worry. <laughs> I am not at all worried. Yeah. And then the other part of it is if it did have that aspect to it, again, 1965, like, right. you know, Lord of the Rings has some aspects to it that are not trans that don't translate well to today. Right. right. Because of what That's it was true. written and people love that. And I think Amazon even is making a conscious decision with their casting now. for Yeah, their exactly. Show to like make it more accurate. Can't really change the regard. past, but right. you know, you can change it. And I think I can't imagine Denny V like doing that. I guess that's what I'm going to say too. Like, I don't see him making a story where he's like, not, where he's like, I'm going to make a story about a perfect white savior. Like, I don't think he would even yeah. be interested in that project, you know? Yeah, I don't, so. I don't either. I think just <laughs> on the whole, he was just intending on making a, a great adaptation of a solid story by an amazing yeah. author, you know? I mean, oh, also Paul has that vision of a holy war. He specifically mm -hmm. says that. And, you know, there's been some holy wars in our time. Were those good? No. So oh. anyway, <laughs> like just... You kind of already have an idea of what's coming, I think, but not all Very the way so. there yet. Um, so what what made you kind of come back to this film a second time or what what's made you more interested in it? Do you think what what piques your interest about it? It's absolutely got to be just the, the world building surrounding it, the way everything operates within the world, the different aspects of who can do what, and you know, what could or might come. And just, you know, the, the overall enjoyment, I don't think that, again, I don't think there's really a bad frame. There's not a bad line delivery. The, every shot looks absolutely, again, ex exquisite. The creatures in the world feel really defined and thought, well thought out. And again, like the sandworm is just dope to look at. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that aspect of it being like, just so enjoyable, like, you know, all the world building is really cool. Um, visually, it's so interesting. And then I'm also just having fun watching it. I I think, like, it is truly entertaining, too. You know? Oh, like, yeah. it's not just, it's not just, you know, informational. It's, like, entertaining. And like I said, you know, with, um, I don't feel like I'm excellent at juggling all these details, but I love the way that he presented it so that I can follow it easily. You know, um, I think a lot of other sci-fi films kind of maybe get caught up in maybe too much of an, of an action scare or too long yes. of a narrative. And I feel like Dune doesn't do that. It really does a nice blend of taking you on a journey that is encapsulated by both, but it, it walks the fine line of balancing them well, because, you know, again, you know, this is a very dense lore that Denny's pulling from, but also a very tall order in terms of, of storytelling because of how intricate every detail really is in terms of characterization to each individual character to where they are and when they are. Mm -hmm. 
100%. And I can't wait to learn more about Ma Dib. So mm-hmm. excited for that. Um, but thank you so much, Philip, for joining me in this discussion. Is, is there anything that you feel like we've missed before we wrap up? You know, truth be told, I feel like we could probably talk more about this movie and this world for hours on end. I know I'm trying to cut myself off because if we keep going, I'll start looking at more terms in the dictionary and or in the philosophy. You know, truthfully, you know, you are a couple hours ahead of me and I I wouldn't want you to miss any scene. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I'll start to be delirious, uh, not from Spice, but. No, um, <laughs> I, I'd imagine if we could, we could probably definitely take a trip to Arrakis. Maybe never want to leave if we learn the ways of the Fremen and, and yeah. avoid the sandworms, but mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. know. And I feel like I've learned enough in this past week. I feel like a mentat myself. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so I really enjoyed this movie. I really appreciated having you on to discuss it. Do you have any plugs you want to do real quick before you go? Well, lastly, you know, Lisa, again, thank you so much for having me. It's always a blast when we get together and talk about anything at all. And I really wanted to talk about something that wasn't quite super heroic. So thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers and just something new that I've just kind of learned to love over. You know, I've been a general fan, I guess you could say, of, you know, the concepts that Dune has inspired through a lot of other sci-fis, but to actually see like a, a... a faithful adaptation from one again one of my favorite filmmakers is just a feat unto itself and i'm really glad that i got to witness this film in the way that i did and i can't wait to see more um and again you know thank you again for having me on it's always a blast uh if anyone really wants to follow me and listen to my shenanigans you can listen to me uh on the eternal night with my friend craig it's just a batman podcast we talk about everything dark knight detective we just did a recent episode with uh legendary moments of the dark knight it's it's a monthly thing him and i do for that show um and you know next week you and i will be joined by chris balga from the marvel alliance and geek podcast network for a review of eternals so yes you know, look out for that it's gonna be excited a for that and then tomorrow night i've got a uh, another you know i'm doing the late night poll around 9 9 30 p.m pacific standard time and if y'all want to follow me you can follow me on twitter very on instagram just at unfiltered well, thanks again. And, and like I said, I, I really enjoyed talking about this this film with you. I'm so glad that you picked it. I I haven't read this book in a long time, but I found myself, you know, just looking up all different types of videos about the history of everything in Dune. And I'm so excited that I'm happy to be in this universe again. So, um, you know, thank you for picking it. Thank you for coming on. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you again, Lisa. 